0: Hello and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shella Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 70. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by CrowdStrike. My guest today is Millie Mumford, a filmmaker, theater creator, scientist, and science communicator. They do graduate research in space neuropsychology and interactive media at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. Millie Mumford, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have you. And I, I was fascinated, as I, I was saying to you before we got on the mic, I was so fascinated by how many different things you do and how different they are from one another. And so I, I'd kind of like to unpack that as, as we get started. And, and I know for a lot of my listeners who are involved in technology in one way or another, the con the idea of something called space neuropsychology is going to be really fascinating. And I, I can hear people going, well, What's that? So can you tell us what that is? <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean it's a very um it's a very niche field. <laughs> it barely exists at this point. Um so basically what I did my master's of science research on was I was looking at ways of um, supporting mental health when we go to space for long periods of time outside of low Earth orbit. So, of course, there have been people who have been on the International Space Station for up to a year, which is considered very much long term um, space, uh, very long term space mission. Um, But soon we're going to be going back to the moon with the Gateway missions and the Artemis missions through NASA, and then eventually to Mars. And this is going to pose an entirely different new set of challenges when it comes to helping people with mental health and brain health. Um, So what I studied for my graduate research was using interactive technology such as AI and VR specifically to support mental health for astronauts. Um, And now that I'm done my graduate research, uh, I'm much more interested in how we can expand this to help everyone. Um, But the sort of niche I focused on, because a master's is so specific, um, I focused on interviewing astronauts who had been on the ISS for long periods of time about their mental health and how we can use interactive technology to support that. So that's sort of what I focused on.
0: Were you able to interview astronauts during the time they were on the ISS or was it all relying on their uh, recollections after they came back?
1: It was all relying on recollection. So I interviewed retired astronauts, um, as well as some uh, analog astronauts, so people who had experienced uh, space analog missions down here on Earth. Um, So I unfortunately wasn't able to interview people while they were in space. It's very challenging even to get retired astronauts to talk to you as a graduate student. So uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do it while they were
0: in space. I mean, it seems like, if, especially if you're talking about somebody's experiences over a year, and obviously you're not, not only are you not able to interview them in real time, but you're not with them. They are very far away. It's like the longest <laughs> Zoom call in history.
1: So, exactly.
0: <laughs> I guess I wonder like, how, how do you sort of compensate for the, the sort of limitations like, like that? Making sure that you're, you're learning everything you can about what kind of mental health uh, needs or issues an astronaut might face.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is quite challenging. Um, astronauts are, they're a very, you know, they're already a very resilient bunch, but they also don't, um, talk about or experience mental health necessarily in the same ways that some of us might. Um, there is very much a culture still, um, within people who are astronauts that, you know, They don't experience the same kind of mental health issues that other people might experience or they have this sort of attitude um, that, you know, other people might break or other people might have mental health problems in these circumstances, but they don't. They never would. It's sort of like this, like they hear about it happening with other astronauts, but they've never experienced it. Um, Or even, you know, one person who I interviewed said like, you know, they might have these experiences, but they would never tell you because that would affect future missions. Um, So something I'm also very interested in is the intersections between things like crip and mad theory. So advocating for um, people who struggle with mental illness, uh, with different accessibility needs, and how we can even access space travel, um, because it is a very uh, ableist field and a very um, sort of ableist goal and, or not not an ableist goal, I should rephrase that, um, <laughs> the process um, of being selected as an astronaut, um, that whole process is very ableist and the guidelines that people follow in terms of who is selected as an astronaut and who can go to space is still a very ableist system and doesn't necessarily look at the, um, the resilience and the benefits that might come along with experiencing the world in a different way. Um, so from my research, that is something that has definitely emerged as to like, how can we make space travel and space science is a lot more accessible and talk about mental health in these areas in a different way.
0: And I, I know it's hard to summarize results of research in a, in a forum like this. I mean, that's what thesis and dissertations are all about. But are there things, are there takeaways? Are there things that you learn from your research that you are then able to apply to the specifics of the AI in order to, to help uh, folks with mental health situations that they might face in space?
1: Yeah, so the results of the research really turned into guidelines um, for future uh, technology, specifically with virtual reality. So it it turned out that the interactive technology, at least from what we were looking at, that might be the most beneficial is VR or even mixed reality applications. Um, And the things that really emerged from the interviews was the importance of connections to Earth on mental health. And this was something that was sort of across the board with all the astronauts I interviewed, Uh, just how important connection to Earth, connection to familiar places, connection to land that was significant to people, um, as well as connection to friends and family, like being able to communicate in different novel ways with their friends and family. Because especially when we go to Mars, there's quite a bit of a communication delay. So it's not like being on the International Space Station, where you can essentially have a Zoom call, you know, with friends and family back at home. Um, And there is really only a little bit of a delay. Whereas when we go to Mars, it's going to be an average of eight to about 22 minutes of a delay one way. So there's no real time communication. And that's really going to uh, affect sort of how astronauts on mars are going to be able to connect back to people at home um so virtual reality and different applications through that was one way um that we could sort of increase or um, make those connections a little bit more immersive
0: so mixed reality and vr sound like great ways to create experiences that mimic experiences they've had on earth but how do you connect to people that way So we explored a
1: couple different ways. Um, One would be filming 360 video of friends and family. Um, So being able to experience significant events that they might miss uh, was something that came a lot. So um, came up a lot. So things like, you know, birthday parties for their kids or uh, family trips, that sort of thing that might be going on when they were away. Um, So if the family was able to take 360 video of that experience and then the astronaut was able to experience that in VR, there might be more of an embodied um, and sense of presence uh, with that event or even being able to replay memories in 360 video. Um, Another way we explored it was really with sense of place. So 360 video of familiar locations, Um, a couple astronauts brought up the connection with that and things like exercise. So for example, taking a 360 video um, of running through your favorite park before you go up to Mars and then being able to play back that video or even a computer generated version um, of a similar sort of environment that you can run through in VR when you're on Mars is sort of a way to connect back to earth.
0: It's really interesting. And it also seems like you're talking to people who have been on the space station, Maybe a month or six months or as long as a year, but Mars missions are going to be, you know, exponentially longer than that. Is there any way to prepare for basically living your life on a on another planet in terms of prepare pro- providing for for mental health and communication back to Earth?
1: I mean, really, it seems like in the research from what I've seen so far, people are really just trying to arm folks as much as they can. Um, in terms of giving them lots of different types of resource resources um, to assist with mental health and physical health. I mean, going to Mars is going to be such a wild card Um, you know, there's so many different things that will be involved in those kinds of missions that humans have never experienced before. There's a psychological phenomenon called the earth out of view effect, uh, which is different from the overview effect, which is when you see earth from above and you are in awe at how beautiful it is and how interconnected everything is. Uh, the earth out of view effect is going to be when earth is no longer distinguishable from other stars and planets in the sky. Mm. It's just going to be a little dot, when we're on Mars and we don't actually know what kind of a psychological effect that's going to have on people. So that's something that psychologists have brought up as something that might be potentially very unnerving, uh, for people. Um, but I mean other things like crew composition, um, you know, picking the kinds of people who Both work really well in high pressure situations, but also are going to work really well together because crew dynamics are going to be incredibly important um, for a mission that, you know, it takes six to eight months to get there. And then people have to wait around on the surface of Mars for about a year and a half for Earth and Mars to line back up in their orbit. And then it's another six to eight months home. So whatever crew is being sent up there, they're going to have to be very, very tight socially uh, as well as professionally.
0: I'd love to talk about what you were saying about the ableist nature of how astronauts are are selected and and the the people we choose as astronauts and just overall uh, theory about that, because it seems it's probably changed somewhat. But obviously, when the astronaut programs began, we were choosing test pilots and people who had that military background and that sort of, you know, ace, uh, alpha male kind of thing going on. And I assume with scientists going up into space that that's that's somewhat different but but are we still in the days where that that military background and that that sort of alpha male energy is dominant in in choosing astronauts
1: it's interesting because some aspects do seem to still be there. I mean, it is true that sort of the quote unquote, the right stuff (laughs) that we've looked for has definitely shifted. Um, Obviously women and, and BIPOC people are a lot more represented when it comes to astronauts now. So the demographics of who we're choosing is changing. Although on average, of course, women and BIPOC people are far more uh, at higher levels of education. There's definitely more pressure for them to be higher achievers. I was looking at a National Geographic breakdown the other day um, of demographics of past astronauts, um, both internationally and at NASA. And even in the last 10 years, white men are still dominating space travel in terms of who's selected. It is better now. but it's still not in any way on par. And on average, all of the uh, women in BIPOC people have at least, you know, master's degrees, PhDs, MDs, whereas men with bachelor's degrees and military training sometimes are still being selected. So there's also a huge difference in just, you know, that level of expectation. I mean, being a femme in sciences and, you know, I would imagine with other people in, you know, with different minority backgrounds, you know, we have to try so much harder to be recognized for the same (laughs) sorts of things in our professions, uh, especially in sort of white male dominated industries. Um, so in some ways things have changed, uh, in other ways, there are some aspects that are still, um, kind of that traditional mindset, Uh, When it comes to sort of mental health and ableism, um, they are still looking for a very quote unquote normal psychological profile. So someone who doesn't have any sort of history of mental illness, um, people who are not neurodiverse in any way. I remember when I was speaking with one of the astronauts I interviewed, I had the personal realization that with, you know, The way that astronauts are currently selected, I would be selected out very quickly um, because of the fact that I have ADHD and anxiety, even though I consider myself a very skilled worker in high pressure situations. And I would actually argue that my neurodiversity and my history of mental illness actually Help me in high-pressure situations and help me in being resilient. But those are the kind of things that they would see on someone's medical record and say, "Oh, you're not meant to be an astronaut. We're going to select you out." Um, and when it comes to sort of physical attributes as well, you know, they're looking for people who are on quote unquote, you know, peak physical health. So very able-bodied people, um, which is interesting because there's so many aspects of space travel that you know. Having those kinds of physical attributes are, you know, sometimes it can be beneficial, but then in other ways, you know, for example, there are ways that that could be worked around in very easy ways. Um, And also, this notion of like, you know, who deserves to get to space? What if someone is at the top of their field in terms of research, but they have some form of physical illness um, that would select them out? But it's still their choice and their body, and they could be incredibly critical to some sort of mission. So I think it's just really interesting to look at selection from all of these different points of view.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if the not only the small number of people who get to be astronauts get to go into space, and also the sort of uh, the mystique and the fact that those people are physically distant, even from the people that they're working with while they're in space, creates. A, a kind of an assumption that, okay, we want the absolutely most quote-unquote normal perfect specimen to be out there because the risk is low and because even though some tasks you might be doing in space might not literally require you to be able to, to walk or to be free of anxiety or, or, or that sort of thing, I guess I just wonder if if there, what, what can be done to sort of take away those, those myths that prevent a wider, a, a more diverse group of people being able to get into space.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with attitudes around disability and mental health that are still shifting. Um, and also personal agency in terms of, you know, who is advocating for the selection of these people and, um, how things are being brought up. Um, I think, too, it'll be very interesting to see when we do go on these long term missions, um, you know, the difference between sending someone to Mars with the resilience of having faced so many different challenges in their life versus someone who, you know, with a quote unquote normal psychological profile that might be facing intense psychological challenges for the first time in their life. And that might actually be very difficult for them. Whereas someone who had gone through, you know, some sort of psychological challenge before might be like, Oh, I have coping strategies to deal with this already. I've been working on them my entire life. Um, So I think once we get into that level of space travel, it'll be very interesting to see uh, what shifts in terms of what they're looking for. Um, But at this point, you know, Sort of working from the outside as a researcher, I'm kind of just seeing all these things (laughs) from the outside being like, it would be cool if they considered other things, but obviously... I have no no power
0: to change them at the moment. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, let me ask you, because in, in the introduction, I mentioned that you're you're a filmmaker and a theater creator, which, you know, the, the, the instant reaction is, wait, wait a minute. You're a scientist. What is what is up with that? So so let me let me ask it that way. But also just to say. Is there something to the idea of of left brain versus right brain or are those incompatible or, or, or do they does it I would assume it makes sense to you because you're you're able and you're you do both these of those things, creative activities as well as being a hard science researcher.
1: I mean, I always laugh as someone with a neuroscience undergrad uh, when people use the like left brain, right brain terminology, because arts are not associated with one side of our mm-hmm. brain and hard sciences are not associated with another oh, um, you didn't see the air quotes very, around that when I said that <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did kind of hear your yes. voice <laughs> The sort of air quotes of like right. you know we still use right. this saying um but it's it's funny like I I kind of have just always been both someone who is interested in both arts and sciences I've never really Had a period of time where I haven't been. Like, I can remember even in elementary school, I was always like writing and like coming up with fantastic stories and like, you know, making my little chapter books that were just like (laughs) 10 pieces of paper stapled together that I'd write on with marker. Um, But I was also already really obsessed with space and really obsessed with sciences and um, with medical sciences um, from a very young age as well. Uh, so I've always kind of done both, um, even in university, you know, in my undergrad, in high school, in my undergrad, I was doing sciences in university, but I was also working, um, at a sort of pre-professional and professional level in theater. Um, and then about five years ago, I transferred into film and started writing and directing for film, you know, after writing and directing for theater for several years before that. Um, So it's always just, I've always just kind of done both and I've sort of refused to pick one. Um, And I also feel that they very much complement each other. I'm constantly being inspired for um, the work I create as a filmmaker and as a theater creator while I'm researching uh, different things in sciences. so I think they really feed into each other. I also do. <laughs> I write a lot of science fiction and horror. Um, so I think genre work in particular is very much informed um, by sciences. But, you know, sometimes it's just also the way I think of emotions and the human experience can be inspired um, by science.
0: Here's an unsettling fact for you. Seventy percent of cyber attacks are targeted at small and midsize businesses. You might be wondering how serious a cyber attack even is. Well, about half of businesses will become unprofitable within a month of being breached. Cyber criminals know smaller businesses may not have the resources to defend themselves from ransomware and malware. That makes smaller companies an easy target, and the ransom collected can add up quickly. If you want to better protect your business, CrowdStrike has a solution for you. Falcon Pro by CrowdStrike is the cybersecurity solution your small business needs. It provides superior prevention from cyber attacks, detects malicious activity, and offers immediate response capabilities for your business. And it's all fully deployed in just minutes to protect your organization. Falcon Pro provides features like antivirus protection, firewall management, device control, and integrated threat intelligence, all in our cloud-based solution. With Falcon Pro, your systems are protected against all cyber threats, not just malware, even when devices aren't connected to the internet. And you can say goodbye to sluggish antivirus scans and inconvenient reboots that delay your team's productivity. Rated 4.9 out of 5 by Gartner Peer Insights, CrowdStrike is the cybersecurity your team needs. Head to crowdstrike.com parallel to start a free 15-day trial. That's CrowdStrike.com slash parallel for a free 15-day trial of CrowdStrike Falcon Pro. Our thanks to CrowdStrike for their support of this show. Tell me something about your your theater and film work so people can get an idea of what kind of things you've you've produced.
1: Yeah, um currently I am uh, so I have a couple theater create theater things coming up. I'm part of a, a residency here in Vancouver at the Playwrights Theater Center. Uh, for the next three years, and I'm going to be developing a large-scale immersive show um, called It Lives in My Bedroom, which is about trauma. Um, But looking at trauma through horror tropes. So looking at all the different ways that people use horror tropes um, and scare tactics in cinema and sort of translating those cinematic tropes to a live theater experience. Um, so that's going to be very interesting. It's essentially going to be like being trapped in a maze that is a horror film, but you're living it in real life <laughs> It's the best way I can describe it. Um, but it's also got a lot of things like game theory, um, in how the different levels of the experience are going to be designed. So it's going to be also sort of like existing in a video game or like a horror video game. So
0: that sounds like it's a little mixed reality adjacent.
1: A little bit. Yeah, there isn't going to be there is going to be some mixed reality um, sort of things like using projection to create some of the um, some of the effects and things like that. So there is definitely going to be a mixed reality element, Um, but it's going to be the sort of thing that you experience without any technology attached to your body. So there's no you know, there's no VR or AR components Um, It's all just sort of (laughs) you're stumbling through this experience unattached to any technology, but there's probably going to be a lot of interesting tech sort of happening around you. Um, And I'm actually doing a workshop production of a show uh, this spring called Controller. And it's (laughs) I kind of joke that it's the companion piece to my master's degree because it's all about technology and violence and how we can either use technology in a violent way, or it can also be used to thwart violence. Um, And it's a choose-your-own-adventure play, so the audience is actually um, applauding for different choices that the characters can make. So the audience is actually going to sort of choose what happens in the play, which will be very interesting. Um, In terms of film work, um, I've written and directed about five short films now, uh, a couple have been sci-fi. Uh, one is a horror film. A couple of dramas. Um, I'm working on a science fiction feature and a horror feature film at the moment, um, and then a sci-fi and a neo-noir uh, series. So I'm sort of just <laughs> writing and developing a couple different things at the moment.
0: That's a lot of things to be doing at once, though, and in, in, in yeah. and just like in <laughs> such different genres. And like, I can imagine how the various things you do are feeding on one another, but I, I, does it ever get sort of just overwhelming as a, as a, as a managing the things your brain is having to process kind of a thing or are you, is, or is it something that you love?
1: Uh, it can definitely get overwhelming. Um, I'm defending my master's Very soon, (laughs) (laughs) imminently. Um, And so dealing with film and theater deadlines while attempting to get ready to defend has been probably the most challenging in terms of balance so far, I would say. Um, But usually I find if I give myself enough space for everything, it's actually quite joyful to kind of bounce back and forth between all the different things. Um, But it's definitely like a scheduling trick. I can't overload myself too much. Um, Yeah, 2020 is 2022 is looking very overloaded. But in theory, it all works really
0: well. But I would imagine that, I mean, both in terms of the creative projects and in terms of the the science work, you're having to spend a lot of time isolated writing or producing, you know, creating something from nothing. And it it seems mm-hmm. like that would be defining the time to do all of that and to make enough space in your life to to do all those various acts of solo creation would be one of the most challenging things, I would think.
1: That yeah, that's exactly it. like writing writing is a very solitary experience and a very solitary thing. And it's one of those things that You know, no one can do it but you. If you want it to get done, you have to sit down and do it. Um, And that has been a huge challenge for me lately is carving out that time for the solo writing, um, for all of the different things that I'm doing when, you know, I also have to work to pay the bills and, and
0: you <laughs> All know, that silly other stuff various like that, things. right? Yeah, we still live under yes, capitalism no.
1: and it's a drag. <laughs> it gotta, it <laughs> drag.
0: Another thing that's important to you is uh, activism and advocacy around inclusion for people of color and women and indigenous folks and people with disabilities. And I'd love to hear you talk about that and how that manifests itself either in your creative works or just in what, what you do in other parts of your life. Yeah, I mean,
1: I feel like there's there's so many aspects to that across all the different things that I do. Um, I find that you know, definitely more in the science and tech world, I still find that a lot of the areas that I'm in are still very much dominated by white men. And also in film, um, you know, it's getting better in that, you know, we are seeing more diversity both behind the camera and in front of the camera. Um, but we also like. there's still so much disparity in terms of who is getting the funding and who is getting the the spotlight and kind of the quote-unquote success you know there's still so much work to be done um in terms of uplifting black and indigenous and people of color um, in the film industry both in front of the camera and behind the camera especially with key creative roles um, and with women and non-binary people, that's something I find as well, um, <laughs> uh, with being someone who's gender diverse, you know, it's amazing to see all these pushes for women in the industry, um, and trying to close that gap, which is still very gigantic, um, between, you know, how many successful women, key creatives there are versus men, um, but then non-binary folks and gender diverse folks are still not even really part of that equation. We're not really even part of that breakdown. Um, And I've been having, it's been interesting having conversations I'm part of a a program right now called women in the director's chair and even the title, you know, even though, you know, I'm a femme person um, and I have quite a bit of like cis passing privilege as well. Um, I still don't identify with the term woman. (laughs) So there's already so many interesting things, even navigating the film industry and trying to advocate for certain groups as a gender diverse person, where even the groups sometimes advocating for that diversity are still in the process of updating their language. Um, And it's something that's changing constantly. Um, I mean, we see it as well with the evolution of, you know, BIPOC and being able to, um, really separate the experiences of indigenous people and black people and the very, um, specific and, um, particular forms of oppression that they have experienced versus other people of color versus white people. Um, you know, I, something that, Gives me hope and you know excitement is just how nuanced those conversations are becoming, um, especially when it comes to advocacy work um, in looking at all of the different intersections and how one person can experience all these different intersections and what that means. Um, something that also really excites me is within the industry talking more about who is telling certain stories and making sure that people whose story is being told are being represented in key creative roles. Um, so, for example, if it's an Indigenous story, there are Indigenous people who are writing, directing, and producing the work. If it's a queer story, you know, the writers and directors are queer. All these different things um, that, unfortunately, at like a high studio level, we're not always seeing. Um, but at least at the independent level that I'm working in, those conversations are happening a lot more. Um, and that's also something that I am very passionate about advocating for to make sure that, you know, whose story that is being told is being told, um, by people who have that embodied experience. And so it's really, it's really exciting to see those kinds of shifts starting to happen, at least at an independent level in film and theater.
0: This may be a Simplistic reading, and please school me if I if it is. Uh, but I would also think that with non-binary folks, the stories that are so often told in narrative film are so gendered. I mean, there's so much about you know boy meets girl, or even a queer story where it's it's two men or two two people who identify as male or, or female. But I wonder if the stories of non-binary people, who obviously have relationships, but that's not necessarily what defines them. And I wonder if those if it's if telling those stories has even further to go, because not only are they not at the table, but they're not thought of and people don't understand what story needs to be told.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're only just starting to see, you know, trans stories on screen in general. Um, and, um, I think it's very exciting how much room there is to tell those stories. I mean, I really only in the last like couple years have I seen, you know, non-binary people on screen. Um, but even then there's often sort of a one there's only one sort of aspect of the non-binary story that's being told. A lot of the time it's very like androgynous or, you know, the character is very androgynous or, you know, X, Y, Z, where, you know, non-binary people have such a diverse way of presenting themselves and, you know, a a diverse set of experiences. Um, And the horror feature that I'm writing, um, which is set at a summer camp, it's a summer camp where the protagonist is non-binary and there's a couple different um, trans characters and they have, you know, very different experiences. And I think I think it's just getting into that that same nuanced thinking that, you know, not every, you know, queer person, not every gay man is going to have the same experience. He will have different intersections. Not every, you know, queer woman is going to have the same experience. They have different intersections the same way that not every non-binary person is going to have the same experience. So I think I'm so excited to see what different representations of individuals and their stories are going to start coming forward um, as we get different creators with those experiences in writing rooms.
0: (laughs) Do you think for and obviously your work accepted, but do you think for genre categories like sci fi and horror, do you think it's better or worse or different than sort of more mainstream is the wrong word, but sort of more general interest film that isn't so connected to a genre I just wonder if there's a difference in the in the way you think uh uh, diverse I guess let's be specific to say say not non-binary representation do you feel like genres have are in a different place
1: not really I mean I have when I think of like um you know awesome non-binary characters I've seen over the last while you know one show that comes to mind is sex education which is very much a like you know it's a comedy drama you know it's very real slice of life you know it's not really genre at all um so I don't actually see those characters in genre a lot at least so far um and so because something that I love about horror and science fiction even if it's more of a you know more of a drama or more of a comedy, but it it has those elements to it. It has sci-fi and horror elements to it. Um, One thing that those genres are so good at is taking aspects of our lives and the status quo that we live in and really flipping them or really, you know, turning them on their head or um, extrapolating from them. So, you know, sci-fi is so fantastic at taking political situations and looking at like, well, what if this happened? Um, Or what if, you know, what if things could be better or what if things get worse? Um, And, you know, with horror, it's so good at taking metaphor and, you know, taking issues that we're dealing with and creating sort of metaphors or creatures or whatever it is that represent these issues that we're having and sort of, you know, bringing them to the surface. So I think that's one way that genre in particular is so cool at exploring things like oppression because there's so many fascinating ways of doing it. Um, but to answer your your question, I mean, I don't really see we're seeing a lot more women and a lot more bipoc folks in in genre, which is amazing. Um, but with specifics to like I guess queer and non-binary identity, I want to see more of that, I would say.
0: What about uh, disability, either representation in film or just wh- what your interaction uh, with the disabled community or, or your thoughts about uh, activism and, and advocacy around inclusion to do with disability? And I guess in the, in the arts in general, I'm I'm I'm, I'm making my question super general and I don't know if that's helpful, <laughs> but but I, I oh, let's definitely. just let's just broaden what we were talking about out to disability, shall we? <laughs> yeah, um,
1: again. At least from, I mean, everyone's going to have a different perspective. I think for me, it still feels super behind. Um, I very rarely see nuanced and realistic portrayals of people with disability and mental illness in media. A lot of the time, it's quite... (laughs) you know, people with those experiences are still kind of used as plot devices or like there's something sort of stereotypical about how they're being presented. Um, And yeah, they just don't seem to have the same, they're not allowed to have the same range of experiences in the story as maybe they're like able-bodied or neurotypical counterparts. And that's something that I'm seeing changed slowly Um, but also a lot of the time sometimes when those people are introduced they're in shows and media where like that is sort of the entire theme of of the show like for example if it's a drama about people with autism you know sometimes there is actually good nuanced representations of that but it's not an autistic character that just happens to be in a story living their life. It is still somewhat having to be all about that experience. Um so I'd love to see more disabled and mad characters who are just existing in stories as themselves. It's not all about the fact that they have a disability. They're just a person living their life and are able to contribute to this story that they're telling in a really cool way because of maybe a different way that they experience the world. And I think that's something I'd like to see more of. And I think within arts communities and, you know, theater communities that those conversations are happening a little bit more, which is amazing. Um and that advocacy is starting to happen a little bit more. Um but the barriers are still very much there,
0: I think. It seems like, as you were saying, people with disabilities often become plot devices in a, in a horror movie. For example, a person with mental illness is the reason that the story exists because they are creating harm. Yeah. You know? <laughs> or, or if you're in a sci-fi movie and you're, you have a disability, we put an appliance on you that makes your disability go away. And, exactly. And I, you know, it's just, it's, it's incredibly frustrating as a viewer, obviously. And, 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 I wonder, you know, as a creator, like, how do you you you're obviously in control of what you create, so you don't have to use those tropes if you don't want to. But are there ways in genre, particularly, that that you can you think about um, how characters with disabilities can be incorporated more effectively and more seamlessly?
1: Um, I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's specific to genre. I think it's really just, you know. Um, whenever you're writing a character, just being able to imagine that character having different experiences um, that they might have if they had a certain disability or uh, difference in um, how they perceive the world um, that could benefit the story in some way, or really, you know, I write things that are very character driven. So it's less about how that person can benefit the story and more how that person is shaping the story. Um, So I think we're starting to see a little bit of that. I mean, an interesting example of that is a quiet place where, um, you know, one of the reasons why the family survived, you know, the monsters that, you know, if you made noise, they would attack you is they had, a deaf daughter. Mm-hmm. they all knew ASL and the actor was actually deaf, which is you know that's the kind of representation we want to see more of is like when you're having when you're portraying these characters and you're including them in the story, they are actually portrayed um, by people with those experiences. Um, so that's a really interesting way in which disability was a benefit. It was and you know we think of even the word disability is like you know, it's portrayed as less than it's like lacking something but i'd like to see more stories where we're showing those different abilities as actually kind of like superpowers <laughs> we're seeing the world in a different way um and especially with someone who's neurodiverse who you know has ADHD and autism i do really see how i experience the world sometimes as a superpower because i feel like i look at things in a different way or maybe see things that other people might not and i think you know i think that's really interesting to think about is how how our different ways of viewing or experiencing or moving through the world is actually very much
0: a benefit i have such a such mixed feelings about the disability a superpower thing because i feel like if you're going to make disability a superpower you you absolutely have to have the creators be people with disabilities because yes. if you don't, it's it's just it's a mess. And it's it, it's there there have been it's yeah it's tokenizing and there are plenty of terrible you know, you create something, oh, here's a comic book hero who who happens to be blind but he's got literal superpowers. But that's not created yeah. by you, you have, you have blind people involved in the production, but the story wasn't created and produced by somebody who had that lived experience and for whom the superpower no. is thought of you know, how, how that superpower manifests itself as the person with the disability is really different than how you imagine it from the outside, wanting to feel good about, Oh, look at that person who uses a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Or, so I don't know. That's a hard one.
1: Yeah. I think when I mean, superpower, I don't mean it in this sort of, um, as as much of a, a marvel and and comics fan in general <laughs> that i am i don't mean it in the sense of like you know having a disabled person in your story who then has other superpowers right. it's more like using a difference of how you perceive the world and seeing that as a benefit mm-hmm. that someone thinks of something differently or experiences something differently um without giving them superhuman powers, (laughs) but using that actual, just that difference as something that is um, positive as opposed to uh, seeing as something less than or detrimental. But I agree. Like, and that's something I don't see as much is seeing people with these challenges in the key creative world roles. Like maybe, you know, we have a deaf character or a character with ADHD but the writer or the director or, you know, people involved in shaping the story, they don't have those embodied experiences necessarily. And I'd like to see more of that as well.
0: Well, Millie Mumford, it was so great to talk to you. I really appreciate your coming on Parallel. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: I So many awesome conversations that I just love having so. <laughs> me too. Me too. Absolutely. Tell people uh, where, where they can find you online and then what you're up to lately.
1: Yeah. Um, honestly, the best way to follow what I'm doing is my Instagram. I'm such a, you know, I've tried Twitter <laughs> just bad <laughs> at it. I'm such a visual person. Uh, so Instagram is definitely the best. Uh, my handle is milligrams, M I L Y G R A M S, on Instagram a uh, little science pun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's really the best way to, to follow what I'm doing or or say hello. And yeah, in terms of things coming up, um, a lot of the things I'm working on are in a sort of uh pre-production, so I can't really talk about them yet. Um if you're in Canada or in Vancouver, there um are some cool uh theater projects coming up. Uh it lives in my bedroom and controller specifically. Um But for film stuff, you'll just have to wait
0: and see. (laughs) Well, and we will definitely put some uh, links in the show notes to uh, Millie's past work so that you can get an idea what they're up to. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you again so much. This was really great. Thanks so much to Millie Mumford for being on the show today. If you want to keep up with Parallel, you can go to Relay.fm slash Parallel, where you can subscribe and learn all about past shows and guests. You can also become a member of the Relay FM network, which is a good thing to do because there's all sorts of member perks that you can read about at Relay.fm slash membership. You can follow this show on Twitter at Parallel Pods, and you can also drop me a line personally at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y, over on Twitter. Always happy to hear guest suggestions, thoughts on shows and uh, what you might like to see going forward. Back in two weeks with another episode. Bye for now.